Welcome to this special edition of the Old Grad Podcast, where we review highlights from the year 2023. Well, I wrote I saw above me the endless skyway. I saw below me the golden valley. Well, this land was made for you and me. I roamed and rambled. I followed my footsteps. The common experience we probably all have is driving across the country, whether it be for a PCS move, an ETS move, moving back to West Point, going to a new assignment. We all know what it's like to be on the highways of America, moving from one phase of life to the next. Well, this land is your land, this land is my land, from California. This first highlight is from Clay Lowe, class of 1991, company C3, and 1992, company C2, where he talks about his one-year gap year while he was away from the academy. I got a job working for a, uh, a company in Old Town, Maryland. So near the West Virginia border, I guess it was. And it was with disadvantaged youth. So these were kids that were from 13 to 17, but they were like, you know, one stage from going to jail. They'd been in and out of detention centers and stuff like that for, um, for a lot. And then this was like, next step is, you know, we're locking you up. And so the program was to bring these kids out into the wilderness, essentially. Um, they had to build their own living quarters. So they built these big uh, A-frame type lodges that they they, they built themselves. Um, and we, you know, worked 24 seven, basically, because you know, I didn't, it wasn't like I finished at nine and go home, we stayed with them for 24 seven. So it was to be, um, you got your t- t- two sort of assistant group leaders and the, the group leader, and I was one of the assistant ones. So there was always two of us with the, our, our group at any one time. Um, and that was actually quite a rewarding experience because you, you know, if we talk about nature versus nurture and that sort of thing, but, you know, they were bad kids in the environment that they came from, but within this environment, you could see them start to be kids again. And they still, you know, got into disagreements, but one of the things that, you know, a part of this thing is that we weren't allowed to continue on any activity so so if some kids got into a scruff or whatever uh, argument then we'd all have to call a council we sit around and they had to work out their feelings and this could take five minutes or it could take two days but in the if it took two days that meant you did nothing but eat come back sit in a circle until the two decided to speak and then you know you would have you know their mates would try to get them to talk and 
but anyway, it was good for them to learn how to express their feelings in a different way than, uh, say, violence or, or that sort of thing. Um, so, so were there? Tell me about the cadre that was doing this. I mean, first of all, what an what a incredible formative experience for you during this year to to, to choose to do that. Like you weren't just you know, hanging out, drinking beers, sitting on a beach, you would, you decided I'm going to go do this, this thing. Nobody made you do that. Um, but was there a cadre? Like, was there like, I mean, I can't imagine that they'd take you like a 21 year old kid and say, develop your own kind of theory of change of how to work with these kids. Like, was there like professional, so to speak, like psychologists? No. Yeah. I think, I think like the big wigs, whoever set up this camp, maybe along those lines, but um, as I said, it was, uh, excuse me, we had, um, so uh, there was probably five or six, I guess we, let's call them tribes. Yeah. So there was these, mm-hmm. and so, and each one would have uh, three leaders. Um, yeah. I didn't actually, you know, they didn't give me any, um, unless they were just drawn on the fact of, you know, the sort of West Point experience and that kind of thing um, as a means of saying, okay, well, Hey, yes. In fact, in fact, that was a plus, I think, because what it was two things. And you asked me, you know, about the sort of, you know, being you know, the whole sort of you know, being black and the like, I think for them, that was partly part of it to, you know, maybe being a role model to say, look, you can do other things besides going this way. Um, and then not to say that all the kids that were there were black, it was mixed kind mm-hmm. of things, but, you know, just so I probably relate it more to they could probably relate more to me than they did to others of the counselors and the like as it were but yeah so I mean the direct answer to your question is I don't remember being sat down and saying hey okay here you go through these trainers how you do there were rules that we had to follow a lot of it was around again the conversations and how to and making sure that these kids worked out their feelings and but they had to do things like, you know, once a week they had to cook their own meals. I mean, they provided meals, but once a week they had to do their own, but they had to do the planning for it. We would take them into town. They'd have to buy the food. Um, and yeah, so it was good for them. And then we had that. That's where this Juliana, Juliana River trip uh, took place. Is, you know, once in the summer they would go on, I guess, like what we do in a National Guard type thing where you get your two-week training in the summer. So they went on a week-long um, adventure type thing and this was a canoe trip that we took them on for a week um uh, it, again just different experiences for them and even on the <laughs> it was the longest canoe trip in my life because even on the we were in the middle of the river if you know, and you got kids in the boat if someone started arguing we had to pull over to the side rally up the canoes and then put them on a certain they would sit in a circle we would sit on a bank until they worked out um their feelings um in terms of what was sort of started the um argument wow yeah. good on you good on you doing this yeah let's let's quickly... then no 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 let's not oh, make it too noble. all right okay <laughs> you I'm, I'm following you i'm following you listen you said it right there i was like it was about four months into this thing and i was like holy shit you know i've just come from an environment where i have to be all disciplined 24, I mean, I worked, so we worked, you'd have two days off, but when you were there, you, it was 24 sevens. There was no time off during the week. Then you got 48 hours off and then you were back. And I was like, holy shit, I've been living in a regimented environment for three years. What the hell am I doing? So I, I left that. And then I went uh, back to New Jersey and I worked as a 
uh, fitness instructor for the remainder of my time there and then doing all the stuff that you said there. So I was assistant manager at some uh, spa, had the keys so I could come in after we been out to the bar, hang out in, in the hot tub and yeah, just do all the wild sort of stuff. So, so yeah, so I did have some time to have some wildness. A mantra from Greg McGavro's life is something he learned from the tailors at West Point. The old Italian guys that would fit us out for our uniforms. It'll fit a fine. It'll fit a fine, cadet. Meaning like, just go with what you got. Another thing that Greg reflects on is some of the sage advice he received from his late grandfather, who was at the end of his days. So, it, um, I think it kind of became a colloquialism, you know, in my family, because it was one of the things that, that uh, one of the things I brought from West Point that I just, I still use even today, you know, but if you remember, you know, WB4, when you used to go down to get your uniform altered and, uh, and there was like a couple times during the year where they would give you like new uniforms. And so they, you know, they, they wouldn't be the right length or they wouldn't have a hem in them. And so you'd have to go down there. They, you'd stand on the box and the Italian tailors would pin you all up, put all the markings on there and then put the next person on there. And, uh, you'd get your stuff back and, and, uh, and they, you know, inevitably be too short or too long or one's not the same length as the other one. And so you'd have to go back down there to see if you couldn't get it altered to get it fixed. And, uh, <laughs> and a lot of times, you know, the, uh, you know, the answer you get is it'll fit a fine and they wouldn't make the, they wouldn't make the change. And so I remember one time, uh, I think it was Doug Kling, you know, came back and, and uh, he was a little upset about, you know, the hem that he had on his, uh, his pants and it was, he was asking us what we thought, you know, after, you know, his second time through. And, you know, I think I could see his ankles on there, you know, above his low quarters. And he goes, well, I went down there to get it fixed. And all I said, is it a fit of fine? <laughs> and then they made me keep going. So it's uh, it's one of those kind of one size fits all. Don't ask me any questions or any details. It's just it a fit of fine. Keep moving. And so, you know, so that that kind of analogy can, you know, lend itself to a lot of different situations. And then I guess the other thing is, is, uh, you know, my, my grandpa, you know, the one that, you know, used to, used to kind of, he didn't raise my mom the best that he could. Um, he was a mathematician. I mean, he was a PhD, he's in charge of a, you know, a, a math department at community college up in, in, in Massachusetts, spent some time with him as a kid, you know, but then kind of estranged for a few decades. And, um, then out of no place a couple years ago, uh, three years ago, he wanted to meet me for lunch. And so I met him, you know, up at a, a diner, you know, up in a, a spot up in Massachusetts, I think in Pittsfield. And, uh, and it was, it was, it was kind of, you know, neat, you know, kind of linking up with him, obviously at this stage in my life. And um, I had a lot of fond memories of him, you know, the, uh, and, the one thing he wanted to leave with me, and so this is kind of a nugget that I share with all my classmates, is that I don't I don't know exactly how to put it, but it was it was really kind of don't define your what you think you're good at or what you like or how well of a job you've done at something based on somebody else's you know yardstick. You know, so it's one thing, you know, if it's a job, you have a very specific thing that you're trying to get done. But his point was kind of, you know, if you like to play guitar, you know, and you like to jam on a certain song, you know, 
don't don't tell yourself that you stink at it because you're not as good as somebody else is or somebody says oh well you're not very good i think his point was to you know to uh to 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 be happy and to be proud of you know what moves you and you define you know what is good for you don't let other people define that and so and i think that that's um that's part of kind of how i look at where i'm at right now you know it's like i love doing what i'm doing and I, and i and i and i motivate myself you know to 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 do a great job on it based on you know kind of what i what i sit out there for myself little did i know is that he had uh <clears throat> he had cancer you know and he uh he never told anybody and then all of a sudden it was like 2 months later you know he had he was in a hospital and he was facing hospice and passed away and so i didn't realize it but you know, that was kind of like his, uh, his kind of like on the way out the door, I want to provide some, some insight to, to my, you know, I guess to my legacy. And so, so I share that, you know, with the class, you know, hopefully that, you know, that makes sense or is useful to somebody, but I thought that that would be a, a good thing to, to, to share is just, you know, you define what not only success is, but more importantly is what you think is a good job. Because, you know, the uh, you can go through your whole life saying that, well, I like to play guitar, but I was never any good. Or I like to paint, but I was never any good. You know, it's like, well, you know what? If you're done painting and you like what you did, then it's good. It doesn't matter if somebody else thinks it was good or not. And so, I, I you know, the more I think about it, every time I reflect on it, it just means more to me. Occasionally during the Old Grab podcast or some topic that comes up, was not part of our pre-call or anything that we discussed ahead of time, but I have to dig deeper. This is one of the situations with Trent Price. Tired by now, but my French instructor, my, my senior year, she and I hooked up. Uh, what? And yeah. Oh, this is <laughs> yeah. a, this is a hold on, hold on. This is a good story. What now? I, oh my goodness. So how did this happen? This is Radio Gold here. This is Radio Gold. Um, is she a captain? She was a captain at what yeah, she had previously she went from captain to lieutenant colonel in our four years there. Uh, oh, so she was a senior captain then. We're talking like I'm gonna say she's probably about 29, 30 years old, probably at this time, maybe even older, maybe 31, 32. Once a semester, uh, she would have at the end of end of the semester a get together where she would cook a French a meal uh, for everybody. And so I, this was at the end of my my uh, senior year because I was allowed to drink. She had wine there, and we were drinking wine. Everybody's eating and drinking wine. And at one point, she and I were the only two people in, in the kitchen. Um, one thing led to another, and we, we started making out. Um, I'm just going to come right out and say this, that all of us who are parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles, we're dealing with younger people who are really banged up from COVID. And young teenagers who are dealing with social media and difficulty with navigating adolescence. And this is a challenging circumstance because we didn't go through it like this. And Craig Peterson in his talk, in his podcast, talks about his experience with dealing with teenagers. And it was very, very insightful. I guess the one unique experience I have that probably a lot of others don't have is I've just been close with thousands of teenagers 
for the past 25 years. I'm with teenagers all day long. Uh, I've coached hundreds of them. I've taught them. I, I, um, and now I live with a bunch of them as well <laughs> and all their friends. And, you know, they have changed a lot. And I believe they are in a bit of a mental health crisis right now. Uh, the kids are really different. They're, um, I feel sorry for them um, with um, the social media and, uh, you know, how complicated their world is compared to my world when I was in high school. And, you know, I think we created this world for them and we gave them this technology and, and, you know, we, we kind of allowed this to happen and it was all a big experiment. And so I think, um, I think teenagers need uh, role models and mentors. And I think, you know, all of you out there, are, if you can ever connect with a teenager and many of you have teenagers, but if you can even connect with one of their friends or somebody, um, somebody else, you know, like they do listen. So they, they don't seem like they listen, but uh, you'd be amazed um, what an impact you can have on teenagers. And they actually want your advice, even though they pretend not to. Um, they really do want your advice and they, they, they want to hear your stories and um, it has a huge impact on them. And we need to encourage teenagers to do things to get off their phones because they're happiest when they're not on their phones. And that means getting them outside, um, playing sports, hunting, fishing, whatever, just doing something, something else that they want to do. And, but uh, Anyway, I think teenagers are, are amazing people and they um, are so honest and they are so, um, um, they're so interesting. They're little kids inside. They look big on the outside and, uh, you know, they just need a lot of loving leadership and role models. And, and so anytime you can reach out to a kid, um, I think that's something that, the biggest way that we can get back um, to kids right now. Having a conversation with Johnny Richardson was like having a front row seat in a master class of change management. And so we show up in Iraq and we are very proficient at counter IED because the IED had been the main killer from 2003 to 2006, seven. But for the most part, we had defeated the ID, at least the Sunni ID. The, the Shia still had the EFP with some Iranian technology, but that wasn't the part of the town I was in. I was in a Sunni neighborhood. And we had, we had generally, through technology, had defeated uh, the ID. And, and, and so, you're, you're defeating that by up-armoring up the vehicles, by jamming the uh, frequencies, yeah. and just kind of you know, they, they just could, they couldn't, they couldn't strike at us with IEDs anymore because of. Right. They, were ineffective. they could hit us, but they were in effect. We had, uh, we'd gone to the, you know, we'd gone from the Humvee to the MRAP, which is this big armored vehicle. Uh, and, and so they had really like, why are we going to continue? It's, we're having no impact. So why are we going to continue with the ID? 
So we show up in Western Baghdad in the, in the fall of 2008, and the enemy had adapted. And they had gone to the RKG-3, which is a anti-tank hand grenade. Uh, Soviet era. So it was something that the Soviet infantrymen would have carried that if he got in close contact with a NATO tank, he would have thrown it. And imagine it, it looks it looks like a German World War One potato masher. It has an um, it has a uh, a parachute and then it comes down on top of the tank, where the armor is the thinnest. It and then it's a shape charge, which means it it pierces the top of the tank and then shoots shrapnel all inside the tank and kills the crew inside the tank. And uh, and and so. I was in this dilemma. I couldn't solve the problem because you really had to kind of think outside the box and and uh, and come up with a, a new innovative way to take on this new challenge. A new so action reaction. What's our counter action? And so what I did was, uh, and it really has shaped how I've led ever since. And that is, I brought a bunch of innovative people into the room, into the conference room, and, and we were in downtown uh, Baghdad. We were in a neighborhood in Baghdad. And it was rank irrelevant. It was people who I knew after spending two years with them were innovative, experimental, um, creative, willing to take risk. Uh, and it ranged from a Sergeant E5, to a first sergeant, to a certain one company commander, but not other company commanders, one of my majors, but not the other major. I got them all into the room, a specialist. I got them all into the room and they're all looking at me. I'm like, here's the threat. I'm about, I'm, I want you all, everything's on the table. There's no crazy idea out there. I'm going to be back in one hour, and you guys give me how we were going to defeat this thing. I literally got up, walked out. They went to work. I came back an hour later, and they had some pretty crazy ideas. I said, okay, we're going to do them. We're going to, we're going to get rid of the MRAPs. We're going to go back to Humvees. We're going to get rid of the 50 cal. We're going to put shotguns in, in the hands of the, of, the gun, of the gunners in the in the um, in the gunner seats of the Humvees, and a number of other changes that we made. We cut armor off. Yeah. So let's just let's just go back. Like you're yeah. you're literally taking a blowtorch to yeah. to to these vehicles, cutting out the armor, the the cutting the pieces of the armor plating off, taking off the crew serve weapon, and giving a guy a shotgun, and you're saying, okay, this is what we're doing. Right. And so, and you got a lot of shit from people. From oh, this. I got, I got, and from every direction. So, you know, and I remembered, and this was my realization the challenge of leading change and breaking people's mental models. And I still remember an intense conversation I had with a platoon sergeant who, who basically said, So I'm not doing what you say. I'm like, well, First of all, I guess you will. But uh, but explain to me why you think you're not going to do it. Sir, that armor plating that you want me to cut off in front of my gunner to give him a wider range of uh, you know, uh, um, a field of fire 
with a shotgun, that that piece of armor that you're having me cut off saved my gunner's life in 2004. I said, yeah, okay, from an ID, right? Yeah, yes, yes, sir. I'm like, okay. How many IDs in the last six months have we had in, in RAF? None. Okay. How many RKG3s have we taken? Oh, so about 25. Okay. So why are we going to defend ourselves against uh, against an IED threat when the threat is an RKG3? And I mean, I, and it's huge risk because I was catching, like, first of all, from the bottom up, I had, you know, I had platoon sergeants, I had NCOs, some officers like, sir, this is huge risk. If someone gets killed, when you put all this stuff on, you know this isn't going to go well. Like, yeah, well, versus let's just do what we've always been doing. And if someone gets killed, sir, you won't be held accountable because you were just doing what the Army's been doing for the last five years. And I'm like, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. I don't want, I, that's not how you win wars. You don't win wars by being risk averse. And to be successful, I'll say combat, but I'm sure it applies to the business world as well. You have to have the ability to sense a change in, a, in the environment and the conditions and be able to adapt to, the, to that change. I was absolutely in awe of my conversation with Karen Walsh as she talked about navigating the complexity of being undercover as an FBI agent so at, at the end of this 20 month stint do you just disappear for the for your old persona or did that like crash into like arrests and people going away like how did that um about a month after i i kind of dropped off the radar and a less than a month after we did a full-blown search warrant of multiple sites um and the affidavit which the subjects get are privy to the affidavits once they're arrested. And so once they were arrested, the affidavit said, you know, yeah, and then the gig is up. And then I had to testify in court, in open court under my true name. When you did that, Karen, and this is kind of weird. I mean, did you did you meet anyone that you then were like, oh, I wish I, I could go back and be friends with them? You know, I mean, cause obviously you disappear, but then if for two years, you obviously meet some people that you're kind of connected with. Yeah, and I I would love to tell you I <laughs> met someone personally, but that never happened. I yeah. but I will tell you like the subjects, you know, I I spent a lot of time with those subjects and I mean, you know, those they they some of them made bad decisions and made poor choices, but they weren't bad people. Yeah. Um and so, you know, I was at funerals, I was at birthday parties, I was they brought me soup when I was sick. Um, wow. I mean, these are people that, you know, it was very difficult for me. This, this, this whole thing, like, I don't want you to think for a second that I'm some super slick Mrs. Jones, you know, I, I was, this was very challenging for me. Yeah. And the, you know, we had um, one of the subjects died by suicide after the undercover. And I remember relying on one of my mentors in, um, in the bureau when I called him and I said, you know, I feel awful because, you know, I feel like the undercover may have been a catalyst to this yeah. man's demise. And um, I remember him saying to me, I'm glad you feel bad 
not because it's your fault, but because the minute we stop feeling bad that someone's life has ended is the day we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. One of the things that I love about having conversations with our classmates is how fearless and honest we could be with each other because we've been there through thick and thin. We've seen the worst of moments and we could be there for each other to pick each other up. And this was the conversation I had with Vonette Couch as she talked about one of the difficult circumstances that she had on the track team and how she was lifted up by our classmate, CJ Luker. I struggled academically. I failed classes all the time. Going into several term ends, I would, I would be failing three and four classes. So there was a track meet and there was an invitational that we had to go to right before finals, freshman year. And I think I was going into finals failing three or four classes. And Coach Basil, instead of letting me study on the bus, just thought it would be more beneficial to call me up and sit with him and uh, so he could haze me about how important grades were. So I go up there and I'm, I'm a freshman and I'm sitting with him, yes sir, yes sir, and he's telling me about my classes and how I need to do better and blah, 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 which I was thinking like, okay, you're really, this, I'm not getting anything, I got, I got to study. What I don't know is going on is all of my history notes, and I was failing history. Literally, all my notes had fallen off my seat and it hit the floor and it spread all over the floor of the bus. People were stepping on them. They were covered in soda. They were disgusting. And CJ saw this happen. And so when the bus stopped and um, I saw that my notes were everywhere, I like panicked. I mean, I started uh, like crying. I'm like, I'm gonna fail this class. And, and then my coach, freaking coach Basil is like, I'm not done with you couch, get inside. So I had to grab my bag and run and basically leave all my notes on the floor. And so CJ, instead of going up to uh, our room, she stayed behind and she picked up every single one of my history notes, uh, the ones that were disgusting and stuck to the floor of the bus, picked them all up and checked us into our room. Coach Basil is still yelling at me and she's got all my notes. And when I finally get up to the room, she has laid all the notes out across every flat surface. They're on the desk and the beds and across wow. the, the, um, that little heater. And we tell this story all the time to our kids because our kids were little and we'd be like, these are the kind of friends you need to have. Rob Blumquist, BQ, his theme song was Should I Stay or Should I Go? As he always thought through whether this was worth it, going through all the difficulty at West Point. In the end, obviously it was. Darling, you got to let me know Should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine I'll be here till the end of time So you got to let me know Should I stay or should I go? It's constant, like, stress, I think, of, like, that it kind of, um, there's always something hanging over you. Um, and having all said that, having do all over again, I do it again tomorrow, knowing all the stuff I went through and, you know, 
to, because of the um, relationships, the experience, you can't compare it to anything else anywhere. Um, and that's, it, you know, it's a very special place to me. You know, we have classmates who are like, you know, who have checked out and they don't, and fine. Um, but other, like when we were cadets, classmates were like, you know, when I leave Thurgate, I'm never coming back here. When I left Thurgate, I was like, yes, but I wanted to come back. I really, I really loved the experience and going there, the people we knew and know, and just the life experiences that you can't replicate anywhere else. You know, George Bush handing us all of our diplomas. Um, there's nowhere else in the world or anywhere that you can have these experiences and have these people who um, who you know, who you, you know, sitting around the top of a bottom bunk with, who you're in a hooch with in Korea. Yeah, this is this is good stuff. And I wow. think at the end of the day, for me, I thought it was good stuff. And so although I was miserable and I was failing classes, I was two-time stapper. Um thankful, fortunate that I've been in a lot of different assignments and different locations where I've met classmates who I didn't know or know well at school. And um, I think it's it's the best, you know, I, I would do it all over again. Um, again, I was miserable there for four years. Uh, but the people, the experiences that you encounter there, um, you can't replicate it anywhere else. And, you know, it's just, it's just great folks. Um, this didn't happen deliberately, but in the future, we're going to be more deliberate about this. Bringing on subject matter experts about certain topics that we all face, whether it be aging, physical health, mental health, dealing with aging parents, dealing with challenging circumstances and being a parent. These are all things that we get to go through together. Man, if I had one wish, one break, break the glass moment, you know, in emergency, break the glass. This is a break the glass moment. It's like, man, if I get an old grad podcast with Jamie, I want Dennis to be a part of it because I want every classmate to hear Dennis's story. I'm one of five kids and you mentioned uh, the two I'm one of three boys, you know, Sheila, Mark, me in the middle, Janice and Matthew. And as it stands right now, I'm the only boy left. I lost Mark to suicide in 1983. And we didn't handle that very well, or I didn't for sure. And 11 years later, uh, history, history repeated itself. And uh, we lost Matthew to suicide 11 years after we lost Mark. All right, class of 1991, I'm jealous. Listening to about all this stuff you have available to you. Through your alumni association, you have a very tight bundle because you went to West Point. And I'm sitting there as an outsider going, damn, that's some really cool stuff. Jamie, listen to you and Vince talk about these tight network of connections and these, these shared memories. And I'm jealous as heck because I didn't get that at West Virginia University. I didn't get my four-year school. You guys have a lifetime of commitment together. Keep it going. Keener Gill, Company I-4, talks about the difficulty of having been forced to leave West Point following an honor violation and the support 
and love he found from our classmates. Uh, remanded to a honor committee, the, the cadet review board did their thing. They suggested that they upheld the, uh, the professor's uh, submission that I had cheated on this project. Um, so I went home over Christmas break with this in the back of my mind, and I knew that when I got back from Christmas break, I would have to see the soup for, you know, he then gets to tell you what's gonna happen. Literally the day before I went back to school that I finally told my parents what I was going back to face because I, I was afraid to tell them. Um, and I didn't know how to process it either. So, right, um, here's, and here's your dad, a Marine, military family, yeah. Gold Star family, your mom, like the whole thing. I mean, this is just like building and building and building to this moment. It's the day before you go back, right? I, I was terrified. I was terrified that I was going to have failed the family in a, in a massive way, a oh. massive way. It was terrible. Um, but I can tell you, my parents were, were, uh, about as great as you could. I mean, they were stunned and heartbroken as you can imagine. Um, but they were awesome. So, and I was, I think we were, we were showing up back at school on like a, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday. And my meeting with the soup was on Wednesday. And, um, I actually had a, I had a panic attack. I freaked out. Um, I was, I was, I was terrified that, um, even you guys might not talk to me. Um, I was, I was, I'm in total, total panic attack the day I was supposed to come back. Now I fought through that and, uh, with some support from my parents and Jay got in the car and came up and, uh, it was, uh, I can't tell you, I mean, Everybody I've talked about on this call, I was I was welcomed back with open arms. It was um, it was it was amazing. It was 180 degrees from what I thought was going to happen. So that was a 91 moment right there. I'm so proud of all of our classmates that stepped up and just it was it was, it was inspiring to hear. Like you know, nobody's nobody silenced you. Nobody was going to be an asshole to you. They were all supportive, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't recall one instance of anybody not being 100% supportive, which was amazing. This is really, really amazing. We managed to get the original blood lady on, Jeannie Case, who talked about her experience at West Point, being a wife of an Army officer and a mother of two West Point graduates, and now also the grandmother of a West Point cadet. Um, it's an honor that I was able to be a part of something that is so much bigger than I and has made this United States as strong and good as it is because of the people that West Point puts out. That's that that whole thing. West Point um, uh, changed my life and I did not have to wear gray pants all the time and I just was happy as a clam to be a part of West Point and honored to have known almost everybody there that I knew. They were just absolutely fantastic. And I, I consider it a blessing and it's one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Chris Barton, company G1, talks about how the Greeks on a moment's notice stepped up and rallied around their classmate, Bill Van Mullen, in his final days. One of our own company mates, uh, Bill, Van, Bill Van Mullen. Bill was a great guy um, from Manchester, New Hampshire. 
in G1 with us. Tall, redhead uh, guy, hard to, hard to miss him in a formation. And uh, right after I started at my new job, I forget how it came down, but I, I got wind that he was sick. Maybe it was one of those Caring Bridge pages. And just on a whim, I think, you know, a bunch of us started talking in G1 and said, hey, you know, Bill lives in, you know, I think of Brentwood, just outside of Nashville, you know, two weeks from now, what are we doing? Can we, can we all rally and get there? Not knowing, you know, it, we knew it was bad. We just didn't know the whole, you know, timeline. So anyway, long story short, about 12 of us Greeks rallied at uh, his house in uh, Tennessee. Had a great weekend. You know, Bill was in great, thrilled to see us. We had, you know, great food. We laughed our asses off. You know, the same stuff we, we, we do now when we get together. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it's just kind of this organic spur of the moment thing that we pulled off. And it was, you know, looking back, that's, that's one of my fondest memories after West Point is that we just sort of instinctively came together and did what we had to do to, to take care of him. And so we had this great weekend and a month later to the day he passed and he was gone. And, uh, you know, I know his, uh, his wife and his two teenage daughters at the time, you know, sent all of us, you know, just saying, Hey, that, that, that meant a lot. Thank you. Thanks for doing that. But I think that was a, that was maybe my first inkling since graduation where I was like, you know what, it's, it's important to show up when we can. In any way you can, you don't have to physically be there. If you can, I mean, you know, but make, make the effort and just try to, you know, do what we do what you can within your ability. And uh, I was really, you know, proud of my fellow company mates for rallying at the, in a moment's notice and just doing what they could to be there. To kick off Army-Navy week, we had two separate podcasts that dealt with stealing of the goat. And we learned a couple new things that were not previously known about the goat heist of 1990. First of all, there were multiple plans to steal the goat. Secondly, uh, there was a uh, there was a, some division within these plans about what to do with the goat once they once they actually had the goat. And finally, there was no kangaroo court. These guys were really in a lot of trouble. And actually, it was due to some intervention by General Schwarzkopf that they were able to get by without having to actually have uh, hours or other disciplinary action. Have a listen. Night before. I think there was a moment when the goat was stolen, you guys took the pictures, we're all yeah. good to go, and there's a little bit of divergence about what do we do next? Because some were saying, ha, 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 we took the pictures, let's get the goat back, we're, we're done. And some people are like, no, the mission's not complete. We are taking this goat. So there's a little bit of confusion yeah. about what was going to happen next, right? And I think that was that. the first cracks, because the team, so there were... I mean, Ron, there were four teams, right? Or five. So there's Ron's team. The team we briefed. Unnamed team with, with yeah. night vision goggles. The Braga Eyeliff hip shoot team that was absorbed into <laughs> our team. And then the exchange cadets were basically going to do it as well. And I think, Ike, I think you talked them into a, team, a partnership. But then, yeah, you're right, G. That night, the cracks started to appear between those two teams. And that's where the real hero of the story comes in. This is where we had the OpCon, plain Jane, Mr. Civilian, Mr. Iliff. You know, and so we didn't think we were going to make it to that point. Uh, so we went, we went to the next plan. And so what I did was I, I called my dad 
And I said, hey, Pops, you want to go on a top secret military mission? <laughs> and, and he was like, yeah, sure. It sounds great. <laughs> and so we, I gave him the address and I said, well, you need to go down and pick up the goat. We stole Navy's goat. And he was pretty excited about it, actually. He's, he's, he's a former Air Force guy. So, you know, they didn't do that sort of thing in the Air Force. So, you know, he got to go on a real mission now. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, uh, I, I asked him to do that. And then, I don't know, you, you explain what you did. Well, it was uh, my, uh, my mother was uh, in a wheelchair. We had to move her around if she wanted to go anywhere. Uh, in a van, an accessible van. So I, uh, we lined the, uh, the van with um, a big plastic tarp and laid out a whole bunch of straw. And then I drove down to Maryland and picked up the, uh, the goat at, at the farm where they uh, temporarily had stashed it and drove back to uh, my hometown, Newton, New Jersey, um, had the goat in our back, tiny little backyard. We had a, a, a Victorian house on a 50 by 150 foot lot. So we had a, had the goat in the backyard. Uh, we called the local newspaper and they came over and uh, photographed uh, <laughs> the goat in the backyard. And then uh, uh, I knew that the goat really needed some nourishment. So uh, Andy tells me I had fed the, uh, the goat uh, a little bit of scotch, but I'm not sure about that story. And so I called my mom. My mom is friends with Brenda Schwarzkopf. They were army spouses that kind of been assigned together. I went to elementary school and high school with Cindy Schwarzkopf. And so we're family friends. And my mom, I tell my mom, like, hey, how do I get something to General Schwarzkopf? And she, it's a Thursday night. We, we know what's happening. We got these two dash ones. And I called my mom and I said, I don't know if it's looking too good, mom. And I read the two dash one to her. And she's like, oh my, what do you want me to do? I said, oh, don't worry about it, mom. I just, you know, I, I knew what I was doing. We'll take our medicine. Uh, and Jamie, this, I, I did, I never asked my mom this. Um, we didn't talk about it until Ted, you wrote the book and that ESPN, you know, interview was going on. And, and at that point I called my mom and I just asked, and I said, did you call Brenda Schwarzkopf? And my mom's response was something like, you're damn right. I did. <laughs> um, I think she was really worried when I read the two dash one, she's like, holy hell. <laughs> and so she called Brenda Schwarzkopf and Brenda Schwarzkopf's response was something like, uh, my mom's name is Peg. She goes, oh, Peg, I talk to Norm every Thursday. Um, and I'll let him know this is going on. Those boys, you know, that's silly. This is great. I don't know what she said to General Schwarzkopf. I never talked to him about it um, until he came to, uh, to the dinner. My tack walks up to me and she says, hey, did your father work for Schwarzkopf? And I said, yes, ma'am, a couple of times. And she said, oh, that explains it. I'm like, what's up, ma'am? And and she said, you're going to eat dinner on the poop deck with Schwarzkopf when he comes. And the dinner's going fine. I'm not going to say a damn thing about it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm still, I just want to fly under the radar. And in the middle of the dinner, General Schwarzkopf stops and looks at me and says, 
hey, thanks for sending that photo of you all and the goat. I posted it in the center of my war room, so all those damn admirals had to look at it. And <laughs> everybody's kind of giggling. I'm not. And I look straight across at General Bramlett, okay? And General Bramlett looks, he does one of these things as if I'm General Bramlett. He's looking straight at me, and he looks over to Schwarzkopf, and he looks straight at me, and he looks over to Schwarzkopf, and he looks straight at me. And he could have borne, I just, I felt like laser beams going through my soul. You know, I was a yuck, and yucks were the, the sub-divers, right? We had to go around and check status. And there were these two cows named Braga and Eilif that were living in a room. And this is, this is giving an example of E4 because I love it to this day. But I go in to check and, you know, you just open the door and all you say is all right. And you get the response back. All right. And you, you walk away. It's quick. I open the door and this was in the forties. I think they were like in the 46th division and on the backside, right? Just rich for like doing whatever the hell you want to do. And I open the door and say, all right. And Johnny and Andy turn around in their chairs there is a massive inflatable Oscar Mayer wiener that's six feet tall in one corner. There are two gerbils running around the floor and scattering. And Johnny looks at me and is like, Ike, what's up? Uh, well, I, I would just say, I mean, the, it was magical the, the time at West Point. For, very uh, forming experiences, the goat being, you know, the pinnacle of that. But all those four years of shared uh journey some hardships a lot of laughs some cries there uh made special that they truly are lifelong relationships unlike others you know and that's why i'd be talking to some young cadet listening to the podcast in the future who might be contemplating ah, i might you know might choose a different path or might uh, or someone who's entertaining but do i want to go to west point or not and i would say i would i would trade for the world not all of it was fun let's be honest <laughs> but th that's what it uh it made those bonds so much more special. Like it is very unique, very unique. I feel fortunate, beyond fortunate to have classmates like you two, uh, company mates like, uh, again, Ted, BC, Jim, anybody. I mean, if uh, you name it, Easy Pete, like those are unique bonds. Like I can't tell you the amount of times where I've picked up the phone in like 30 seconds, like, hey, uh, whoever, Pete, hey, Pete, I need, I need this. Like, oh, okay, all right. Like there's not, there's, there's very few of those relationships in your life where it's it's truly like family and you do anything for that person. And that's because of those shared experiences. And um, the GOAT just happens to be one of them. But as far as me, I mean, thanks for the kind words. I'm humbled. Like, I'm humbled just to, like, there's no way in my wildest dreams I thought be in the military or the Army this long. I honestly don't know how it happened. It's, it's certainly uh, because of great uh, support I've gotten both from the family but then leaders – past, present, future soldiers I've got to work with, and I've been part of a good team. And that's all I wanted to be on, is be on a team sport. The Army's a team sport. West Point is a team sport. You go through it individually, but you're on a team at all times. That's what's been so addictive for me to desire. Like, I'm excited to come to work to this day to be on a team, working on the toughest problems, and hopefully contributing towards those problems and just hopefully just be remembered as the you know, best teammate possible. And where it's a kickball kickball team uh, bar fight or stealing the goat i hope someone wants to pick me on their team so i feel fortunate and blessed and uh to call you all classmates and felt like we just lived up to our motto of uh, duty shall be done 
My last podcast of the year was with Chris Hartley, who talks about the importance of developing leaders of character and what it means to be a West Point graduate. Well, I, I would say to them that, you know, I would, you know, first of all, my, my enduring takeaway from West Point wasn't, wasn't anything I learned in calculus, wasn't anything I learned in chemistry, wasn't even anything I learned in law per se, but, but it was just the positive professional habits and problem solving and teamwork and resilience and, and, and attention to detail and all that stuff that I applied in all walks of life, uh, whether it's military and civilian. Um, you know, uh, I, I got, I was a stickler on things that a lot of faculty had not been sticklers on classroom decorum and stuff like that. And, 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 and while I might've been a pain in the pain in the butt, uh, because of that, I think they, they appreciated it. I mean, one of the cards I got, thank you card said, sir, I really appreciate all the, 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 the advice you gave us on general professionalism um, you know, throughout it all. Um, so when I got to West Point, I knew, God, this is, this is, I take this job. I mean, I don't take myself seriously, but I take this job extremely seriously because this is, this is, you know, almost more important than everything, anything I've done, every single, the way I act and the way I teach and conduct myself and the way I hold, hold these, these, these cadets accountable. I mean, that's, 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 that's enduring. Um, that's, that's, that's the leaders of tomorrow, both here at Citadel and up at West Point. Um, you know, and so, yeah, I, I tell them oftentimes, at least in terms of the military regiment, sometimes it's not even the rules that, that, that matter. That's not what matters about this whole, this whole game, this whole, you know, it's, 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 Hey, getting through this, getting through this process, leading people, leading, being a follower, being, being a leader, being a teammate, um, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. And it, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a process and, and yeah, that's, that's kind of what I would, I, I, I would, I would focus on. Um, wow. And, and I would say, because you, you, what you want, what you want to strive for, you strive for it. When you become a civilian in five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, and you go apply for a job. I want, I want by the way they handle, by the way you handle yourself, without them knowing you went to West Point, without them seeing a classroom. I want them to know that. I want them to know that by the way you, that you handle themselves. And that's, that's what it, you know. That's a win. That's a win right there. And that's a wrap for 2023. Thank you, everybody who listens to the Old Grab podcast. This is a labor of love. I truly do enjoy doing it. Look forward to doing further uh, episodes in 2024. I hope to get at least 10 to 12 more episodes in 2024. If you'd like to be a guest or you know somebody who should be a good guest, please let me know. Email me, jamieschleck at gmail.com. You can text me or call me, 732-690-4331. Stay in touch, stay healthy, stay connected. Duty shall be done. I saw above me the endless skyway. I saw below me the golden valley. Well, this land was made for you and me. I roamed and rambled. I followed my footsteps through the sparkling sands of diamond deserts and all around me a voice was called
This land is your land. 